watching my fellow Americans with your host, Spike Cohen. Yes. Yes, it's me. It's me. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Keep clapping. Thank you. Keep clapping. How would we know that you were ready for the miracle if you didn't in fact keep clapping? Thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to my fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. Thank you so much for joining me this Wednesday, the 27th. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today on this very special episode of my fellow Americans. We're going to be talking about uh, police brutality and how to get to the bottom of it uh, very shortly. But first, uh, let's just go through the stuff that I always say before we get to the guest. Uh, this is a Muddy Waters Media production. Check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Anchor, Twitter, Periscope, iTunes, Google Play, Float, Twitch, everywhere. Check us out everywhere. Check us out on muddywatersmedia.com uh, to see this in every single episode. And uh, also go to our Anchor, anchor.fm slash muddiedwaters, where you can leave us messages that we will answer every week, uh, every Tuesday, usually every Tuesday, uh, this Tuesday special. Um, but uh, we can, um, uh, we'll talk later about why I'm doing this show on Tuesday and not on Wednesday. Actually, I'll go ahead and tell you now. Uh, tomorrow night, we are going to be live reacting to uh, to Joe Biden's first they won't call it a State of the Union. They're just calling it an address. He's addressing Congress, but not a State of the Union, just an address. Okay, 
So we'll be uh, live reacting to that. So I'm doing my show tonight. Uh, be sure to like us, follow us, five star us, hit the bell if it's on YouTube. However it is that you show your approval with what it is we're doing, be sure to do that. And share this right now, this very second. How would we know that you wanted to watch a roughly hour long? That's not the last thing we would want is for you and your closest loved ones to miss out on a roughly hour long libertarian podcast on a on a this time a Tuesday night, usually a Wednesday night. So be sure to give the gift of Spike Cohen today. Kids love it. This episode, of course, is brought to you by the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the fastest growing waffle related caucus in this or any other party on this or any other planet. Uh, become a member today by going to the Facebook group Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus and become a duly seated and voting member of the caucus by going to muddiedwatersmedia.com slash store and buying a Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus button or hat or I think we have a shirt too. So go to the store now. Um, this episode, of course, is also brought to you by the Gravy King. It's also brought to you by Nug of Knowledge. Uh, smokable CBD products. Nug of Knowledge is not your usual CBD, everyday CBD smokable supplier, because there are, that's an everyday thing, but this one's not your everyday one, because uh, a portion of the proceeds go towards fighting and ending the war on drugs. Uh, they also have a compassionate use program that uh, donates their product to veterans and uh, and people that cannot afford, the disabled people and people that cannot afford their product. Many people who use it say that it helps with joint pain, inflammation, or a much-needed pick-me-up. So go to nugofknowledge.com and be sure to use the checkout code SPIKE, S-P-I-K-E, for 10% off your weed. Um, this episode is also brought to you by Joe Soloski, running for Pennsylvania governor. Joe Soloski is the key to Pennsylvania success, and if you want to help him in his run as the first libertarian governor of Pennsylvania, then go to Joe Soloski, that's J-O-E-S-O-L-O-S-K-I dot com. Finally, this episode is brought to you by, well, actually, finally, this, well, second to finally, this episode is brought to you by our most aptly named sponsor, Mud water, uh, coffee alternative. If you woke up today and said, gee, I'm sick of drinking coffee, I'd rather drink something that's made of some kind of mixture of masala chai, cacao, mushrooms, turmeric, sea salt, cinnamon, and literally nothing else. Well, friends, I've got some great news for you. That's what, that's what this is. So go to muddywatersmedia.com slash mud uh, and get your first pack today. Uh, I actually uh, drink this stuff and I like it. I actually think it tastes good, and it's way better for you than coffee. has a little bit of caffeine, but just enough to wake you up uh, and not so much to leave you all shaky all day long. And finally, this episode is brought to you by Chris Reynolds, personally injury, personal injury attorney, Chris Reynolds, attorney at law. If at some point you find yourself personally injured in the state of Florida, then Chris Reynolds can sue whoever did that to you so you can get lots and lots and lots and lots of money. I can't guarantee that's what's going to happen, but he'll certainly try his best to get you as much money as is possible to fit in a very large briefcase. I can't guarantee that either, but he'll certainly try. Uh, this, the music, the intro and outro music to this and every single episode 
of my fellow Americans comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I, Joe Davi. Check him out on Facebook. Go to his SoundCloud. Go to his Bandcamp at joedavimusic.bandcamp.com. Buy his entire discography. It's like $25, and it's some incredible, incredible music. Uh, be sure to listen to the end for the outro music, which is every bit as good as the intro music, and go buy his entire discography. Thank you, Joe Davi. The water. I'd like to thank Le Bleu. Drinkable water. Drinkable. That's what I'm calling it, drinkables. It's a drinkable. I'd like to thank Le Bleu for this drinkable that I'm drinking. Uh, it is made of, I'm not doing the molecular thing. I've, I got shamed enough on that. It's made of water. It's good water. I'm told that it has the right proportions of hydrogen and oxygen. So uh, drink up. Bulabanaka. It is good water. Shout out to Tehran Turks' mom and him as always. Folks, my guest tonight is actually, uh, we pre-recorded earlier today. He was not going to be able to do it live, so I pre-recorded it. So I'm not going to play that, but I will be in the comments with y'all commenting. So don't not comment because I'll be there. I'll be there. In fact, I'll be there. I'll be there even more present than I usually am. Usually, I have to talk to my guest and check the notes and you know look up what I'm going to ask him next or her next. Uh, and, uh, you know, go through, you know, produce the show and make sure the stream is working. I don't have to do any of that. That's all already taken care of. I'm just going to hit this button right here to make it start. So that allows me to just comment with you. So comment even harder than you usually would. And, uh, and I'll be hanging out with you and I will be back just as soon as this is over. But, uh, this was my interview, incredible, incredible interview with my guest, uh, police use of force expert and USC law professor, Seth Stoughton. Enjoy. Folks, my guest tonight is an associate professor at the USC School of Law. He's also an associate professor in their Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice. He was a police officer for five years and is the principal co-author of his book, which I have on a different slot. So I'm going to leave this part out. But he's the principal co-author of... He's the principal co-author of Evaluating Police Use of Force, which came out last year, and he has written about policing for the New York Times, the Atlantic, Time, and many other publications. He teaches police law and policy, criminal procedure, criminal law, and regulation of vice. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, please welcome to the show Professor Seth Stoughton. Seth, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And folks, be sure to comment with your questions and thoughts, and I will let you know in the comments if you are right or wrong. Now, Seth, I, before we get started, I, I'm just interested. You were a police officer for five years. Then you become an expert on uh, police use of force and, a, and a, a law professor. What caused this shift from being a, a cop to becoming a professor and expert in use of force? Was there some kind of aha moment that led to that, or was this always the plan? Tell us a little bit about that. No, uh, yeah, sure. Definitely was not the plan. Um, there was there was quite a bit of time in between when I left the police force and started as a law professor and really started to develop a, an expertise in use of force. I left my police agency uh, full time in late 2005. I stayed on as a reservist, a part time officer for about six months into 2006. Uh, when I took a job as a state investigator. I was uh, with the Florida Department of Education's Office of Inspector General for more than two and a half years, 
before finishing a four-year degree that took me 10 years because I'm a little slower than the average bear sometimes <laughs> uh, and then went to law school and when I went to law school my thought was I was leaving all this criminal stuff behind uh, I had sort of been there and done that with different aspects of criminal right. law not as an attorney but I was at least familiar enough with it to think that I was done and then in law school, I had some amazing professors and I got sucked back into looking at policing from an academic and especially a legal academic perspective. So that sent me down an academic route. And after, um, after a couple of years as an academic, uh, I really started to focus on use of force issues as something that was not only worth knowing about, but really worth examining and uh, examining as a technical expert. Uh, so it sort of developed from there. That's interesting. Now, did you find that your perspective was markedly different when you were a police officer uh, than when you were once you were, I guess, a civilian and, and a law and then becoming a law professor? Uh, and if so, was, you know, what do you think contributed to that shift? Or, or was this always kind of your thought process, even when you were even when you were in the in the police department? Yeah, that's a good question. There are there were definitely parts of my thought process that changed, definitely aspects of my perspective that changed quite a bit. Um, when I was an officer, I was not studying policing. I was a cop. I, I wasn't in the role for some um, sort of ulterior purpose. I wasn't trying to learn more about right. it. I was, I was just doing it, right? I was just sort of boots on the ground doing the job because that was my job. Uh, so there are definitely parts of my perspective that shifted as I began to look at, uh, at policing from this perspective of having been an outsider, but now, uh, or excuse me, having been, well, first an outsider and then an insider and then back to right. an outsider's perspective. Uh, there are also parts that are very consistent. Um, so my agency and the training that I got, the, 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 the cultural influences of my agency certainly affect the way that I think about things. Um, my uh, police department was pretty professionalized. Uh, we had access to a lot of training and there was a great deal of cultural norm uh, at the time I was there that for example, you would use good tactics and that you would avoid escalating a situation whenever it was possible to do so. Uh, the best fight was one that you didn't have to fight to win, right? The best right. thing to do is to talk someone into handcuffs, even if that takes you another 30 minutes. So that part going from my practical uh, on the ground experience to an academic perspective certainly remained consistent. And now uh, even if the reasons for it began to expand a little bit, uh, so absolutely some some differences in perspective, but also some consistencies there, too. Interesting. So, you know, police brutality issues have been in the headlines off and on for a few years now, very prominently so in the last year, especially after the killing of George Floyd. Uh, now, to be clear, uh, moving forward, because you recently testified in the Derek Chauvin case as an expert on police use of force, we cannot talk about that specific case, but we're going to be talking about similar cases and we're going to just be talking about the factors that contribute to police brutality and use of force issues. So just, you know, full, full disclosure for everyone watching this, uh, you know, we're not going to be breaking down that specific case uh, because we, we don't want to be seen as potentially tampering with that trial or anything like that. Now, with that said, uh, the, the killing of George Floyd has set off this most recent 
uh, round of hyper-focus on police brutality issues, and it has kind of continued on from there. But this isn't new. I, I remember even being a kid, the, the uh, footage of the Rodney King beating and the aftermath from that not guilty verdict, and even then it wasn't new. This is something that's been going on for quite some time. What do you think are some of the, uh, and we'll obviously dive into it, but what do you think, just off the top of your head, what are the main contributors to police brutality? And is it something that you think is getting better or getting worse or, or staying the same? Yeah, so those are both really big questions. Um, the Let's uh, let's take them uh, in reverse order just for fun. Okay, okay. Um, I think in the short term, there's not a whole lot of change. Um, you know, from now in 2021, looking back a year or two years, I'm not sure that I've seen anything that I would say, wow, there's a there's a sea change there. We're definitely heading in a different right. direction. I think as we start to look a little more globally, as we start to look at the pace of reforms or incremental changes in policing, I think policing is in a very different place generally than it was in the early 1990s, right? The Rodney King era or the 1960s in the civil rights era or the 1920s and early 30s in the prohibition era. Uh, and I bring these up specifically because those eras are really when there was a lot of public focus on police abuses and the use of force. Um, so I do think that policing is better, but saying that it's better is not nearly the same thing as saying we should all be happy with where policing is as an industry right. now, right? Uh, I, I tend to be an incrementalist. I think that the, the, the most reliable long-term path to reform is steady but incremental improvements. Um, and I think we've seen that in policing, but there are a lot more steady incremental improvements that I think we should be pursuing and that we should be pursuing immediately, even if our time horizon is trying to change the fabric of policing in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. That doesn't right. happen in 10, 20 or 30 years without efforts today, right? Uh, in the same way that some of the reforms that have taken place recently would not have happened without pressure in uh, the 1990s or the 1980s right. even. Um, so what are some of the biggest contributing factors? Um, I think broadly we can break them up into factors outside of policing and factors in policing. Okay. And the, by factors outside policing, I really mean societal factors, right? We have to remember that policing doesn't exist on its own. It doesn't exist in a vacuum policing is part of our contemporary society. So it reflects and it magnifies a number of the issues in our contemporary society. And I'll give you uh, two easy examples, right? Uh, drugs and traffic enforcement. There are a number of police incidents that we can think of involving drugs or traffic enforcement. Um, Walter Scott here in South Carolina was a traffic yep. stop initially, yep. right? Um, uh, there are, I mean, there are a ton that started as drug investigations, whether it's a, a traffic stop in pursuit of a drug investigation or, or not. Um, that's not something that's internal to policing because the police are not the ones who write the laws. The police are not the ones who say this substance is illegal and this substance is legal, or 
this is what legal driving looks like and this is what illegal driving looks like. The legislature does that and then tells police, okay, here are the laws that you can enforce. Um, that's one aspect of what I mean by external to society, uh, excuse right. me, external to policing, sort of societal. Right, right. Uh, another example is how or when people call the police, right? The types of problems that we as a society look to the police to address. And the easy examples here are uh, alcohol and substance abuse issues, mental health. When you have a family member who has a mental health diagnosis, maybe is off their meds, is acting out in some way that you can't control, people call the police. They call 911. That's the only resource, right? Um, that's not necessarily something that happens internally to policing. That's because we as a society have decided, and I say decided as if it was a conscious choice, often it's not. But we as a, as a society have essentially by default left it to the police to handle those issues. I also think there are issues within, so I, I'm happy to talk more about the sort of broader outside of just policing, but there right, are also issues right. within policing. Right. Um, culture, training, uh, supervision, cultural norms. What does one officer expect of another officer? We know how powerful those expectations are in shaping behavior. So if one officer really expects another one to be uh, aggressive or one officer expects another one to be very patient, that cultural norm, that expectation is going to have a tremendous influence. And unfortunately, at many agencies, our culture of policing has emphasized immediate compliance to lawful authority, yeah. which can create some tensions and problems that lead to uses of force that are otherwise avoidable yeah in fact or that's the wrong nope you you didn't do anything wrong there i did so we're gonna stop. so you said uh uses of force that are unavoidable um yes or even uh caught the the mindset of we need immediate compliance even if the order isn't lawful that's something you'll have to work out later in court but in the meantime you have to listen to our orders we just saw that with the uh the uh army uh sergeant who was um being detained in uh virginia and uh the police uh, were pulling him over uh because his um his uh license plate wasn't immediately visible now once they pulled him over they saw that it was behind his window and it was a temporary plate uh, but they that didn't stop them from drawing weapons on him and ordering him out of the car. He calmly explained, uh, you have to first tell me what's wrong here, why you've pulled me over, and I'm not, I don't have a duty to get out of the car. And they responded by uh, pepper spraying him and forcing him out of the car. Um, this was an example of an unlawful order, but because he wasn't complying, they were using force until he complied, even forcing him to the ground in, in, in doing so, uh, and then immediately realized that they were in the wrong. So there's an example of where compliance seems to trump everything else. Um, there's something, and again, as a civilian looking at the discourse between police officers, the rhetoric coming from, from police departments and police unions, uh, even in the, the wording and rhetoric that's in their training, there seems to be this sort of war footing mentality, this narrative, you know, that, you know, we as police officers are in a war zone, the enemy is in plain sight, uh, if anyone refuses to comply, then they're probably the enemy, we could be killed at any moment, so we have to hit them first, that sounds like a violent personality disorder as policy or, or as a mindset. Is this the sense that you get as well? Because I, I can tell you, 
that's what I get. It's what many others get when when we talk about it. Has this always been the case? If so, if that's the sense you get, has this always been the case? Is this something new or is, you know, is this just something we're now seeing because of social media or is it, has this always been the case or is, or is this a new thing? Yeah. Um, great question. So, uh, yes, it is in many cases, the, the sense that I get, uh, and I'm, I want to be a little bit careful because although I'm going to talk about policing and agencies, it is important to remember there are 18,000 different police agencies in the right. United States right. and the agency culture at one may be very different than the agency culture at another. However, of course. generalizations, keeping in mind that generalizations are inherently have a degree of inaccuracy, right? Um, general is sort of embracing that, that caveat. Uh, there are some generalizations and I and others have written um, rather extensively about this aspect of warrior policing. And that terminology is not accidental. And that terminology is not something that I or others invented a, as a criticism. It was something that really originated within policing the identification of officers as warrior cops, the importance right. of building a warrior mindset, of having a warrior mentality, uh, of becoming the bulletproof warrior, to use the name of one popular training seminar. Uh, there were, uh, I, I mean, if, if you look up warrior policing, and especially if you use Google's fancy, you know, time settings, so you're not looking in, say, the last four years, You'll find, and the reason you're not looking in the last four years is because over the last four or five years, there have been a lot of criticisms of warrior policing. So if you look before that, right, before about 2015, you'll find a tremendous number of books and articles and training programs about being a police warrior. And that's a very good thing, or at least it was presented as a very good thing. It's really problematic, right? It, it's really problematic because the rhetoric of officers as soldiers in the front lines of the war on drugs or the war on crime or the war on terror or i suppose whatever war you want to insert there right i think really confuses the police role and it doesn't just confuse the police role it gives officers an inaccurate sense of the role that they actually play in society and let's take that war on crime thing because that's maybe the most obvious right the, the rhetoric today, even today, is not officers as peace officers, which is what they are referred to in many state statutes. It's law enforcement officers. And what's interesting about this is policing and the police power of the state is a rather general concept, right? The police power refers to the authority that the state has to safeguard the health safety, welfare, and morals of the populace. Right. And law enforcement is certainly a piece of that, but it's actually a relatively small piece of that. And when you look at the number of studies that have been done on what most officers spend most of their time doing, the vast majority of officers spend the vast majority of their time not doing criminal law enforcement. They're answering a range of non-criminal calls for service. They're engaged in a range of non-criminal self-initiated activities. It's not that policing and crime are, are totally unrelated, right? Of course, there's a relationship there. But we as a society have made the false assumption that police are law enforcers first and foremost, 
And when you look at what they actually do, that's just not the case, right? Um, we've organized police agencies around this concept of police as law enforcers first and foremost. There's right. patrol, there's investigations, and then maybe there's some other stuff too. And that's just not an accurate reflection of the tasks that officers are, are asked to perform. So the first thing to note here is we have this, this real incoherency where officers and the rhetoric surrounding policing is this is the police role, but that's not actually what, what they do. At least it's not what most officers spend most of their time doing. So has that always been the case? You know, interestingly, it really hasn't. Um, I'll, I'll do this very quickly and I apologize. This is what you get for having a law professor on. I'm very long winded here. Um, <laughs> it's an hour long show. Take your time. Oh, good, good. Um, so the history of policing in the United States really starts in uh, the 1830s and 40s, uh, the formation of the first municipal police departments in the 1840s at some of the large cities. And there's disputes, you know, the agencies even today fight about which one was the first police department, whether it was Boston right, or right. New York. Or, um, and what those police departments did when they were formed is they eventually, well, they, they started to supplement and then they eventually supplanted some of the other systems that were in place. There were constables, there were day watch and night watch systems. And eventually we got these more formalized police agencies but if you went back in a time machine and you looked at what those police agencies did, it would not look a lot like what police agencies do today. Uh, police agencies were very heavily tied into the local political machinery. So a lot of what they did was constituent services. They ran job halls for recently arrived immigrants. They operated soup kitchens and homeless shelters. They distributed shoes and medicines to the indigent. It was sort of a generalized police in the sense of broad social services function. There was a crime related aspect to that, but it really wasn't investigative. There was a lot of reluctance for officers to get involved in investigations because the, I, the, the thought was that that would require officers to associate with criminals. And that wasn't something that you wanted your government entities to do. Uh, and around that lasted that political era as it's called uh which had all kinds of problems it, you know lots of low-level political corruption and the like but it lasted until about the 1910s 19 teens early 1920s and this is when the professionalization movement of policing really kicked in and we started to separate police from the community and we got this dragnet approach the old tv show right um of police as crime fighters the facts nothing but the facts and anything except crime fighting was a waste of police resources. Police were the crime fighting specialists. And this is where we really started to see, especially with prohibition, this idea of police as adversarial to the communities that they were engaged right. in policing in. Um, prohibition is just a fascinating case study. It's uh, you know an explosion of the federal police apparatus, mm -hmm. uh, the, the way that we used even local police and we have uh, a report, actually a series of reports from the Wickersham Commission uh, in the 1930s, 
And you can pull some of the language in the report on the, the Wickersham's report on the failures of law enforcement during prohibition. You can pull some of the language, update it ever so slightly, and it would be equally applicable today, right? So one of my favorite lines, and I'm going to mess up the quotation to some extent, but one of my favorite lines is something like, um, high-handed methods and unnecessary force alienate uh, thoughtful and otherwise law-observing members of the community. Well, yeah, that yeah. that seems that seems right. Uh, uh, another one of the problems that discussed in the Wickersham report is this perception among police that prohibition important is their highest priority. Right? Mm -hmm. It is more important to enforce prohibition laws than it is to, for example, respect civil rights. So, if we think about it on a plane. If prohibition enforcement is more important, then like, yeah, did I violate someone's rights? I did, but it was for the mission. It was for prohibition enforcement. So right. one of the observations of the Wickersham Commission was that's a problem that is contributing to some serious issues in policing. Uh, so time passes. Uh, we get to the civil rights era and although policing at this point has set itself out as the crime fighting experts for about 50 years, crime is going up and policing mm -hmm. is saying, we can't seem to do anything about this. Um, so if you're trying to be crime fighting experts, you're failing. And that along with the pressures of the civil rights movement really led to, uh, or was supposed to lead to this idea of community oriented policing where police would in some sense go back to its roots and start focusing on root causes of crime and disorder and unrest. But at least in my observation, I think what a lot of policing did is it adopted a patina of community-oriented policing while yeah. still maintaining this crime-fighting orientation developed in the professional era in the, in the early 1900s. And that's kind of where I think we are now, although I do see some signs that at least some agencies and some police leaders are recognizing we need to be more than crime enforcers. In fact, not only do we need to be more than that, that's only a, a relatively small, if important, but a relatively small part of the police identity. And see, this is the main thing that I talk about a lot is that this largely it didn't start necessarily with prohibition, but that was the major uh, bump that caused the what we see now. There were many things that came from prohibition. One was that it made it harder for addicts to get help because they're now criminals in addition to being addicts. Uh, two was that the product got worse because now it was being provided by unscrupulous characters. Three was that crime went through the roof because now two-bit thugs that used to make money on the numbers or you know uh, protection rackets are now given this multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, four was that it created more corruption in government because now you had these cartels paying off uh, government officials, police officers, and politicians, which which led to more corruption, not just on, when it came to enforcement of that, but just in general. But then the other thing that it did was it created this adversarial no role between the police and the public. The police are no longer here to protect you. They're here to make sure you're not drinking. They're here to make sure you're not doing nothing wrong. And it also created when any uh, organization now feels like everyone is against them, when any group feels that everyone else is against them, they become cloistered and now they're fighting back. And that's what happened with policing. Prohibition for alcohol ended. But prohibition for other drugs continues and in some cases has strengthened over time. The other thing, as you mentioned, coming into the civil rights era, you now had 
qualified immunity, which started, I think, the first qualified immunity decision was in the 1960s, uh, where the Supreme Court ruled that uh, police... Uh, and, and to give a very brief un, uh, explanation of it, that police, if they de- if they personally decide what they did was reasonable, then they can't be held liable civilly for this. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I, I know we don't have a tremendous amount more time, but I, I want to, to delve into this. My understanding of qualified immunity is that it creates a really perverse cost-benefit scenario. So that if you have, for example, an officer who has had multiple complaints of violent excessive use of force, even uh, multiple uses of potential uh, wrongful death cases, you have plenty of police departments across the country who, when they look at these bad apples in their bunch, they make the cost-benefit analysis of saying, well, if we try to get rid of this officer, we've got to fight the police unions, we're going to have to spend all this money, and there's a good chance we aren't going to be able to get rid of them. And thanks to qualified immunity, we largely as individuals and organizations can't be held civilly responsible, and neither can that officer. So it's probably best to just keep them on the force until they do something so bad that we can charge them criminally for it, and then we can get rid of them. Uh, that leads to a culture of unaccountability within the police forces. It actually um, discourages accountability because now you have police officers that don't want to stick their neck out because they're the ones that get you know demoted or or put passed over for promotions. There's no real accountability happening because there's no function or mechanism by which they can be held accountable unless they actually commit a criminal offense uh, and can be proven to do so, which usually has a higher threshold for police officers than for the rest of us. How much does uh, you know, the, the I guess for lack of a better word, the war on victimless crimes, the war on drug crimes, the war on uh, sex work and things like that, uh, and the qualified immunity, how much of that is just leading to, we hear so much focus on funding, more funding for training or, or changes in training, but I'm not sure a rational human being needs to be trained not to murder someone or to assault someone for not listening to them. How much of this is just lack of accountability and this creation of adversarialism because of the war on victimless crimes? Yeah, good question. Um, and I, I'm I'm going to answer that, I promise. I want to go back to, to what you were describing about prohibition because I think there's, sure. a, there's a sixth or seventh, you, you, you gave a great list there. Um, one of the aspects of prohibition that I think we need to uh, uh, recognize because it has some contemporary implications is there was a race and class component to prohibition. Oh, right? yeah. It wasn't yes. just it, it wasn't just the police watching everyone in the public and saying, are you drinking? It was the police being um, used as a mechanism mechanism of the state because of suspicion of German immigrants who went to beer halls or yep. of uh, uh, the the. It, there, there is both a race component there, and I yeah. say race, and uh, you know, the contemporary listener is going to say, "Well, German is the same race." Like that's all. At, at the time, it wasn't. At right? the time, like, German it, and Irish were not considered the same. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and they weren't. I mean, yeah. that they weren't white in the way that we think they of were it not today, white. right? Yeah. So, yeah. so we have these. We so we, there's a there's a there's a race component. And there's a huge class component because the wealthy folks could continue having wine parties, yeah. uh, but the lower classes, the working classes who were using beer, well, that was a real problem because, you know, these common laborers would just go home and beat their wives or would waste all their money on beer and not actually feed their kids or, or the like. These were the stereotypes, right. the tropes. Right. We see that mirrored in 
both historical and contemporary discussions of uh, a whole range of behaviors, right? We saw it mirrored with the crack epidemic. Uh, we saw it mirrored in, uh, in, the, in the, starting in the 1930s, 1920s, 1930s, really with marijuana. Uh, we even saw it before prohibition, right, in the late 1800s and the regulation of opium um, in, in cities in California, which were really focused on Chinese immigrants, not on whites who tended to use opium in the form of laudanum. So yep, yep, yep. Um, there is a very heavy element here where policing has been leveraged in ways that are about social control, which I don't say as a as a derogatory thing, like not you know not allowing me to go kill my neighbor is a form of social control that we can all generally right. agree that seems that seems right. That's reasonable. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a reasonable aspect a of reasonable. social control. But we start to see aspects of social control that are uh, very heavily predicated on race and class, and um, that includes the early police. Uh, entities picking up some of the functions that slave patrols had been doing earlier in in American history, right? So it's it's multifaceted and it's it's a little complicated. I don't think it's fair to say slave patrols just turned into policing, but as right. we look at the th as as we look at the rope of policing, the threads that make up contemporary policing do include slave patrols, the slave patrols, right? Right. Um, Okay, so now uh, qualified immunity and accountability. Um, yeah, so qualified immunity comes along and many folks are gonna be familiar with it, but qualified immunity basically says, even if an officer violates the constitution, and that's a really important point, even if there is a constitutional violation, the officer is immune from suit, cannot be sued unless the violation was clearly established at the time. And the way that courts have read that is basically there needs to be a prior case with very similar facts such yep. that any reasonable officer who's on the scene at the time of the officer's action would have known, oh, that's a constitutional violation. That's a really high bar, right? And you see courts making these if you'll forgive the expression, bullshit distinctions between a case that they're analyzing and a precedent case that seems like it should apply, right? Yep. Oh, well, yes, this is both, uh, these are both excessive force cases and they involve very similar uh, facts, but this person is, this person was sitting at the time and that person is standing and that's The other person was enough. lying down, yeah, yep. Right. Or, or an example, so, there was another example of uh, police uh, uh, corrections officers who, for fun, were uh, tasing a, an inmate in his cell uh, who was actually complying. They were just doing it for, for giggles. And uh, they ended up uh, being held to have qualified immunity, even though there was another similar case, because in the other case, they used uh, tear gas or pepper spray instead of a taser. As opposed to that's a taser. different. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, okay, it's a different force option. It's a different weapon, <laughs> but the circumstances seem very similar. So, so the court, uh, starting at the Supreme Court, has really defined this, what's called the clearly established prong of qualified immunity at a very, very tight level of specificity. Right. And, and then we can add on to the fact, right, just as a reminder, qualified immunity only applies when there is a constitutional violation. So the Fourth Amendment that regulates searches and seizures 
allows officers lots of leeway to make mistakes. They can absolutely arrest the wrong person. As long as they have probable cause, that's okay. It doesn't violate the Constitution. You don't even right. need qualified immunity to that to, to, to resolve that case, right? Um, or as long you know, an uh, officer stops someone and investigate them and search their car, and the officers are just wrong on all counts. Well, as long as they had reasonable suspicion or probable cause, depending on which part of the encounter we're talking about, it is constitutional. So you don't even need qualified immunity. With qualified immunity, we're really only talking about when there's a constitutional violation. So has that affected accountability? Um, I think if you look at the rhetoric, yes. I think if you look at the numbers, it's less clear. And the reason okay. for that is if you if you listen to what officers are saying, what police unions are saying about qualified immunity, they appear to be presenting this argument that the only thing keeping officers on the job is qualified immunity, right? That without qualified immunity, officers will sit in their patrol cars and do nothing all day long. Right. Um, which, which I think is actually really offensive, right? I, I think it's very infantilizing to say, well, the only way a professional can do their job is if they're completely insulated from liability. Like, have you seen right. doctors and even, you know, lawyers who have to carry malpractice insurance? Like, it's not, yeah. you know, the fear of liability should not keep a professional from doing their job. Right, um, exactly. But leaving, leaving that aside, if you look at the numbers, qualified immunity probably isn't actually as important as it purports to be. And okay. I'm, I'm relying here on some research uh, by Joanna Schwartz at UCLA, who's just phenomenal. And I would highly recommend everyone uh, check out the, the massive body of literature she's, she's done on qualified immunity. What she's found is qualified immunity comes up in some really egregious cases, but it doesn't come up a tremendous amount. And the reason it doesn't come up, and this is maybe a little technical, but the reason it doesn't come up is because when you have factual disputes, it's much harder for a, a defendant, an officer, to make a qualified immunity argument. So if, if, a, if a plaintiff says, the officer punched me in the face and I wasn't resisting at all, and the officer says, either I didn't punch him in the face or yes, I punched him in the face, but there was this high level of resistance that justified it, you have this argument about the facts and everyone would agree, well, I shouldn't say everyone, most folks would agree if he wasn't resisting, it's definitely clearly established that you shouldn't punch someone in the face. So you don't get qualified immunity in that case. There's this, what's referred to as a genuine issue of material fact and a jury has to figure out was there resistance or, or was there not. But despite, I, I, I'm sorry, sorry, I'm sort of going off on a, on a technical tangent here. When you look at the rhetoric we tend to think that qualified immunity is really important to officers. But when you dive into some of the research, it does not appear that officers are actually basing most of their decisions or any significant amount of their decisions on fear of liability. But I think qualified immunity is still really important, even if getting rid of it wouldn't help resolve a whole bunch more cases or even if it wouldn't change officer behavior. I think it's still really important for a couple of reasons, right? One. We're talking about someone whose constitutional rights have been violated. And with qualified immunity, there is no compensation for that constitutional violation. Like getting money isn't the best way to compensate someone. The best way to compensate when someone would be to not violate the rights in the first place. In the right? first place, right, right. 
so let's aim for that. But, you know, it's an imperfect system. Sometimes the best we can do is provide monetary compensation. And that's what our tort system is based on. So getting rid of qualified immunity might actually allow us to establish compensation for people whose rights have unquestionably been violated, right? That's one. Number two, look at the conversation we're having right now. Qualified immunity makes it very difficult for an informed populace to trust its government. Right. Why, why would I believe that officers have best interests at heart? Why would I believe in, why would I have a lot of faith in government or my government actors if I know that they can basically act with impunity, including in some pretty egregious cases, right? right? Officers who stole a quarter million dollars of rare coins and antiques, and the court said, well, it's not clearly established that that's a Fourth Amendment violation, so qualified immunity applies. That's a real case. That's not an exaggeration. Like, are yeah, you nuts? Yeah. Yep. Um, I also think it sends an important, if relatively maybe technical, signal uh, that no, this this rhetoric about officers needing immunity and not being properly susceptible to critical review. That's okay, right? Like we need officers to be critically reviewed because, you know, ultimately in a democracy, it is not up to the government to determine whether it's doing a good job. It's up to the citizenry to determine whether the government is doing a good job. Right. And I, I also think it sends an important message to officers, to those bad apples that know you will be held accountable if it's clearly determined that you violated someone's rights or that you violated the law. Um, that will be a potentially a powerful deterrent factor to officers uh, to not join or to quit early. Uh, I've heard often, oh, you know, uh, officers are going to leave if they're if they're not if they're going to be held accountable. And I say, Good. Yeah. Any officer that does not want to be held accountable, any person who does not want to be held accountable for hurting other people, I do not want doing whatever that thing is. For similar reasons, I think we should be talking about ending absolute immunity for politicians and, and prosecutors and judges as well. But that's a whole other subject. So, yeah. if, so if, can if, I, if can I make one more point about? Yeah, about yeah, yeah. Go ahead, immunity? go ahead. All right. Sure. So the, the, it, it's kind of important to recognize, like the reason for qualified immunity. Right. So here's the I'm, I'm going to I'm going to use a visual aid here, my expertly drawn visual aid. Um, <laughs> so let's see if this works. Can you can you can you see that? Yes. Yes. Con line. All right. So that's the constitutional line. Right. Yes. And the the idea with qualified immunity is we want officers the white balance is throwing me off here. Okay, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I can't tell which direction I'm going. All right, we want officers to, to be able to act right up to the constitutional line. Yes. And the only way to allow them to do that, this is the justification that's given for, for qualified immunity, the only way f to allow officers, the only way that they will feel comfortable uh, walking up to the constitutional line, that is going right up to the very edge of what the constitution allows, is if we immunize them or insulate them if they happen to step over the line a little bit, right? Yeah. And I think one of the fundamental questions that we might want to revisit as a society is, do we want officers walking all the way up to the qualified immunity, uh, excuse me, to the constitutional line? The constitutional line. If, if that means that we have to forgive them when they step over it, right? It may be, I think it's entirely possible to say, the constitutional line is where they should stop. So as they start to approach that line, they had better slow down so they don't step over it. 
right? right? I think that's a perfectly reasonable public policy position. Right. I think, I mean, and apply that to literally anything else, Seth. Like imagine being told like, well, I mean, you know, you don't want anyone, you want people to be able to do their job. So if they accidentally run someone over while they're doing it, uh, you know, I don't want to mess them up as a delivery driver. And I want them to go exactly to the very limit of safety and legality in their delivering of food. So therefore, uh, if they end up running someone over, I mean, we got to give them a pass, right? Like that, just, it, it wouldn't apply to anything else. And, and we could have a whole discussion about the, the, the uh, undue deference that is given to people in government compared to literally anyone else outside of government. But I don't have enough time with you for that. But I, I want to give you a chance to, uh, while I still have a few more minutes with you, what do you think are like, let's say, the main two or three things that need to do to really put an end or at least greatly ameliorate police brutality now and in the future? And then from there, I guess, just give your final thoughts. The floor is yours. Oh, boy, no pressure. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, first, I think we need to be very holistic. I think we need to recognize that policing is a complicated social phenomenon and it's going to require a complicated and multifaceted solution or set of solutions. I am really at the edge of my patience with one-stop fixes like body cams, right? Just throw body cams or tasers, right? Which was the one-stop fix 20, yep. 20, 30 years ago. Uh, we have use of force problems, tasers will solve it. Uh, or pepper spray in the 60s, uh, 60s, 70s. We have use of force problems. Well, we'll just give officers pepper spray. That will solve the use of force problems, right? We have a we have a persistent problem in policing of the, the silver bullet solution. Um, the contemporary one is maybe some combination of... Uh, body cams and, uh, oh, if we just give all officers 40 hours of training in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, we will solve all of the, all of the problems, <laughs> right? And uh, look, I'm a martial artist. I have a very healthy respect for Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but that's insane, right? 40 hours of anything is not going to solve the issue. Uh, so I think we need to think very broadly, very comprehensively, very holistically. Starting with, what is it that we want officers in society to do? What are the scope of the criminal laws that they are enforcing? How and why are we using officers to respond to people with mental illness? How and why are we using officers to engage in traffic enforcement? How and why do we have officers who are engaged in what has been referred to as policing for profit or revenue generation, which is absolutely abysmal, right? That's, that's one practice that needs to be eradicated tomorrow. Um, this is, you know, officers running speed traps and writing city ordinance violation tickets because their their city needs the needs the money, right? Needs it's a money, form of revenue. What, yeah, it's a form of what academics refer to as rent seeking, when the government extracts resources from the population without providing a corresponding benefit, like a public safety benefit or the like. Um, I do think that we need to rethink and provide more, this is going to be an unpopular opinion potentially, but provide more resources for aspects like police training. Uh, South Carolina is a good example. We have one of the lightest training requirements in the country. Officers here get 480 hours of training for their state certification. That's 12 weeks. The national average is double that, 21 to 25, 24 weeks. And in South Carolina, a third of our academy curriculum is online. So they really only get eight weeks of in-person training, right? 
you want to give someone with eight weeks of training the authority to take someone's liberty, to invade their privacy, to take their life on eight weeks of training? That's ludicrous. Uh, so what do we have police do? How are they trained? How are they supervised? How are they held accountable? What are the internal and external accountability mechanisms? All of that has to get kind of rethought out because this adversarial approach in policing that comes with a very heavy cultural norm of protecting each other, right? Officers protecting officers contributes to problems like what's been referred to as the blue wall of silence, where officers really don't want to help a bad apple be held accountable, right? Yeah. Um, I also have some major problems saying the words bad apple, because I, I think often the problem is not that one individual apple is bad. The problem is uh, the barrel that they're in has allowed them to go bad and is not doing enough to keep them from going bad. So we need to look not just at the Apple level, we need to look at the actual barrels at how police agencies are run and organized and managed. Uh, so let's see what else. I mean, there's a there's a there's a ton. Uh, and there are, you know, the 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 optimistic part of this is there is a lot of room for your listeners to get involved in whichever aspects of it make sense to them, right? Some folks are going to say we need to get police out of mental health response. Yeah. Great. Focus your efforts on that. Some folks are going to say we need to make sure that police agencies are actually, you know, holding officers accountable for administrative violations. Great. <laughs> Go get on it. Um, so there, there are lots of inputs. The single most important thing for any of them, I think, is political will. We have to have political will to change public policy in this area, and we will not have that political will without public pressure. It just won't happen, right? When, when you look at the history of policing, back to the Wickersham report almost 100 years ago, there's the Christopher Commission, the Kerner Commission, the Knotts Commission, the Overtown Commission, right? We have this ton of blue ribbon panels of experts who have looked at policing broadly or looked at a particular incident like Rampart in LA or looked at a particular agency like NYPD after Serpico and said, here are the problems and here are some solutions. And if you line up those reports, I would say 85% of the problems and solutions are basically the same, right? It's almost a copy paste, a toxic culture, a lack of accountability, uh, a perception that that whatever the goal is viewed as being, like law enforcement, is the most important priority and that other goals, like respecting civil rights, take a back seat. We know what the problems are. We know what many of the solutions are. We just need folks in power to gussy up and get stuff done. And that's where public pressure comes in, right? Politicians right. need political will, and that comes from voters and, and pressure, uh, uh, you know, presented by voters. Right, right. And I think uh, two other things, I don't think you're necessarily not saying this, but two other things I would add to that are, I do think if we, if we, and you, you did mention this briefly, getting rid of victimless crime laws and stop using police as revenue generators on minor offenses where no one is a, is a victim. Uh, those two things 
greatly reduce police interactions with the public in the first place. So there's less potential for, uh, you know, for, for use of force in any case. Uh, and also it, it stops, it reduces and, and, and helps eliminate that adversarialism between the police and the public, uh, in, in a major way. And then I think another thing is, is, and, and I mean, we could do a whole sub, a whole episode on this, the 1033, uh, military surplus oh. program, civil asset forfeiture, the sort of federalization of militarized police policy. Get rid of all of that and put the put that money and power back in the hands of communities to decide what their police departments look like, what they actually even want them to be doing, and how much of the things that we're currently calling police for now should instead be handled by social workers or a mental health professional or you know or some other situation where an armed person who is primarily uh, uh, or at least in this case, primarily their job is law enforcement. You know, is there someone that's better suited for that in the first place? And maybe we don't try to use police officers as this catch-all uh, in in the first place. But anyway, I think this was an incredible discussion. Yeah. Certainly no, a great place to get started. Go go ahead. That I just just to just to pick up. Uh, you know, I I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, on the on the victimless crimes point. I. It's one thing to say that we don't need the police to be leading the charge against some of these crimes. And you can go down that road. You don't necessarily have to go all the way to it should all be legal, right? Or it should right. all be, for example, right? I think it's entirely coherent to say we really need to treat drugs as a public health issue, not a criminal justice issue. Right. And still, and still say, look, do I want people using drugs? I mean, I'm not going to talk about me personally, but I think someone right. could say, I don't really want people to be using drugs, but I think the right response is a public health issue like Portugal is doing, not right. a criminal justice issue, right? right. So it, it's, you know, I, I think we need to avoid dichotomies as we're having this conversation. It's not police or nothing. It's often police or some other range of public service, public health infrastructure. And we've done a really bad job of over conflating policing and public safety, right? Policing is a part of public safety, absolutely. But there needs to be a much broader public safety and public health infrastructure uh, than policing can possibly provide. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, it does not. I mean, I definitely believe in ending the all of the war on drugs. But even if you sure. don't treat it like a mental health issue, treat it like an addiction problem or a health problem, as opposed to treating it like a criminal issue, it solves the problem. It gets people help and it costs a lot less for those that, right. that are screaming at their. Yeah. yeah, it's way cheaper for the people screaming. Yeah, but I don't want another government program. You know what? Putting millions of people in a, in a prison uh, for most of their life and then rendering them unable to be able to generate income afterwards is a government program. And it's a really crappy one. But yeah, Seth, thank you so every... much. Oh, sorry. See, I keep trying to go. I keep going. You've no, I, I'm trying to be here. respectful of your time. You're you can talk as much as you want. I'm just being respectful of your time. I, you know, I, I in most counties, the single largest provider of mental health services or substance abuse services is the county jail. And when I say provider of mental health services or substance abuse services, mostly right. what I'm talking about is warehousing people yep. who have mental health or substance abuse issues. Because often, there are some exceptions, but often the services provided are very limited, too little, and often far too late. Yeah. So, yeah, if, you know, I, I don't want another layer of government, okay, I get that. But it shouldn't it really be about getting the right layer of government, not right. 
you know, abandoning government altogether, at least in my view. Right. And, and, and sticking those people with mental health issues with a criminal record, which definitely will help them in the long term. Uh, so looking at that <laughs> sure. as well, Seth, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, you are a friend of the show and I hope to have you back on again soon. Yeah, I'd like that. We left a lot dangling here. So I, uh, I look yes. forward to those future conversations. Thank you. Thank you. I told you it was going to be good. I told you. I said this episode's going to be good, but you didn't want... Oh, let me turn the fan down. I told you this episode was going to be good. Hopefully you listened because uh, Seth Stoughton, absolute expert in what's going on with police forces, and he's 100% correct. As long as you have all of the conditions in place, you have the increasing divide and rift between the police and the public due to this adversarial nature that's being created by the police largely being there to create revenue for the state, uh, even if it means ruining uh, people's lives financially for days and weeks because they pulled them over for, you know, a seatbelt violation or a broken taillight or something like that, or ruining their lives financially and raising revenue uh, over the war on drugs or the war on sex work or the war on gun ownership or any of their other wars on, you know, victimless behaviors. Um, As long as that happens, and as long as actors in government, including police officers, but also including politicians and judges and prosecutors and everyone else, uh, as long as they're not held accountable for their bad actions, that's going to lead to everything that we're seeing now. It's a wonder it's not worse, honestly. Um, in fact, the fact that it isn't worse is probably a testament to just the general desire of people to to, to be of better nature. Um All of the conditions are there for it to be at least as bad as it is now and possibly even worse. And so when we get rid of those conditions, then we can actually address the root problem and the root cause. Um, Otherwise, we are leaving it to the people who just want to make it about race, just want to make it about class, just want to make it about something that can't be fixed. Well, the problem is racism. Okay, great. You're never going to get rid of racism. So you've basically said we're never going to solve the problem. That's a great way to make people so hopeless that they end up just, you know, marching in the streets and burning things down because they they believe that there's no way to actually fix this. Instead, if we can actually show what the root problem is and then fix those things so that we don't have the problem anymore, now we can actually solve the problem. So anyway, folks, uh, I want to let you know, again, the reason that My Fellow Americans is on Tuesday this week is because tomorrow is a very, very special Wednesday. What makes tomorrow different from all other Wednesdays? Well, folks, folks, my guess... Oh, wrong thing. Tomorrow is when I will be on Kennedy starting at 8. We will be breaking down and... uh, uh, Well, we might be breaking down, actually. Uh, We'll be uh, previewing uh, Joe Biden's speech tomorrow. He's going to be giving an address to Congress. It's not a State of the Union, Because that would be called a State of the Union. Instead, it's just an address to Congress, which is completely different from a State of the Union because... Anyway, we're going to be previewing uh, Biden's State of the Union. And then uh, immediately after that, probably around 8.45, 9, something like that, uh, we will be actually breaking down... Matt and I will be breaking down live and live reacting... Uh, We might break down as well. We will be live reacting to Biden's uh, 
non-State of the Union, State of the Union address. Uh, if anyone hasn't ever watched our uh, our live reactions um, to debates or to States of the Union or to any other public things, uh, it's really a, quite a sight to behold. Uh, we got the setup where, you know, Matt is over here, guy on left. I'm over there, guy on right. And then here in the middle, we have what's going on. In this case, there'll be Biden's speech. And we basically just dunk on him the whole time and make fun of him and and uh, showcase all the nonsense he says as he's saying it. So uh, when the following day, when everyone's making fun of all the meme-worthy stuff Biden said, you'll be at the cutting edge of remembering it while it was happening live, and you'll have the filter of us making it somewhat more bearable uh, because you're not just having to listen to him for you know an hour plus. You get to hear us make fun of him too. So in case uh, you uh, you know kind of helps you cry through the tears or laugh through the tears, or I guess you can cry through the tears too. Uh, but be sure to tune in uh, tomorrow for uh, Kennedy uh, at 8 p.m. on Fox Business, uh, and we will be previewing Biden's nonsense, and then join us immediately after that right here on Muddy Waters Media uh, for the Muddy Waters of Freedom special edition, Biden Geddon. That's what I'm calling it. I just made that up. Biden, Biden Geddon. That's what we're calling it, Biden Geddon. Biden Apocalypse would actually probably be better, but I'm going with Biden Geddon because I already said it. Um, so, folks, thanks so much for tuning into that uh, in advance. Uh, also, I want to thank all of our sponsors. They're not patrons because we don't use Patreon because we don't like Patreon. Uh, but our sponsors, uh, and you too can become a sponsor by going to anchor.fm slash muddywaters and pressing the donate button, and you can become a regular contributor to Muddy Waters, your generous donation allows us to continue doing this so i'd like to give a shout out to justin mickelson jack casey zachary martin joshua mchose kenneth ebel ebel sean sparkman james ely dan faust jennifer morrison jack casey jeff depoy andrea o'donnell kenneth ebel oh that's right kenneth ebel's giving twice uh meg jones and billy pierce for texas Folks, thanks so much for your generous contributions. Thank you for everything that you do. And again, if you want to join and, and become one of the people that we call out uh, at least twice a week, uh, go to anchor.fm slash muddywaters and you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. So thank you for that. And again, tomorrow, Kennedy, followed by Muddy Waters of Freedom. So be sure to watch that. And if you're saying, Spike, I don't have cable, well, then just watch us on Muddy Waters of Freedom. And I'll let you know how it went on Kennedy. So you can do one of these things at the very least, but, you know, do both. You can get a double dose of Spike tomorrow. What joy for you on a Wednesday evening. What joy. Uh, And then uh, tune in on Thursday night for uh, the writer's block, which is Matt's show. And his guest will be... Angela McArdle, who is running for uh, the chair, to be the next chair of the Libertarian Party. Uh, So you can hear what she has to say. Uh, She will be on uh, Matt's show. Uh, And then uh, on this Sunday, uh, on Monday and Tuesday, I will actually be in Ohio Uh, And I will be giving a a press conference uh, for the Accountability Now Project. More on that to come. Uh, We're going to do some big things in Ohio. So uh, stay tuned on my social media. And we'll be talking about uh, what I'm going to be doing out there. But if you live anywhere near uh, Columbus, Ohio, uh, be sure to come on out and uh, come see me. I'd love to get to meet you. Um, And then join us right back here next Tuesday uh, for the Muddy Waters of Freedom 
on its regular time, 8 p.m. on Tuesdays, where Matt Wright and I parse through the week's events like the sweet little 2020 Wonder Boys that we are. And then join me right back here next Wednesday. Same spike place, the normal spike time, because it's on Wednesday, for another fantabulous episode, the 99th episode of my fellow Americans. Folks, thanks again. Have a great night. I'm Spike Cohen, and you are the power. God bless, guys. Open up the only fine I'm in line